You are listening to the JCN Clinic Podcast. The JCN Clinic Podcast is a place where nutritionalists Jessica Cox and Carissa Mason get real about nutrition and living a healthy life. They share with you their passion and their clinical knowledge for a fun, no BS approach to looking after yourself. Please enjoy today's episode and don't forget to subscribe and iTunes. And welcome to the JCN Clinic podcast show. I'm Jessica, and today I'm flying solo without Carissa, but I am joined very excitingly by Paula Smith Brown, uh, who is the healthcare science liaison for Cobiome by Microba. Um, I'm so excited to have you here today, Paula. Like, I feel like you and I are going to nerd out hardcore <laughs> together and um, get very overexcited about everything to do with microbiome. But before we dive in, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do? For sure. So my name is Dr. Paula Smith-Brown. Um, I'm a PhD accredited practicing dietitian. So I always say everything I do is about food, my job, my hobbies, <laughs> um, my home life. Um, but I um, qualified as accredited practicing dietitian in the UK, where I specialised in paediatrics, food allergy and intolerance, which led me eventually to Australia, where I did a PhD in the development of the microbiome in children. Um, and since completing my PhD, um, I have been working at Microba for the last five years, um, where my current role is healthcare science liaison. So this is where I take my hat as a microbiome researcher and my hat as a clinician to really try and bridge the gap to find how can we um, synthesize um, all of the massive body of work that's happening in terms of understanding the microbiome and how it links to health um, and bring that into the clinic today. Where is the sort of the clinical application um, today? So it's very much about nerding out into the details, trying to work out <laughs> what the science is saying, where the clinical relevance is, and but then also communicating that um, and developing um, accessible tests and communication to be able to really help healthcare professionals bring information about their patient's microbiome into their holistic patient care. Love it, love it. And I I know we've just only met, um, not in real person, but online <laughs> through some meetings um, yep. through Microba. Uh, so I haven't had a chance to know much about your background and I'm actually really fascinated by the fact that you've got such a large um, interest in paediatrics. I didn't realise that. So I'm mm. just, I'm already going rogue on the <laughs> list here. <laughs> but I'm just curious how you've carried that into this next move that you've done with your career. Like it's, um, is paediatrics still something that you're quite passionate about? Even so, from the, I guess, from the microbiome space too. I just find it quite interesting. Yeah. So um, in my current role, it's very much adult focused because um, mm. the 
um, tests we offer are for adults. But um, the company still knows that I'm passionate about children, so I get sent all the studies. I I advise on any of the research studies that come in on paediatrics. And although I'm not currently working in private practice, my two little girls are my most challenging um, <laughs> cases ever. I always say that they're my karma for all the years that I was telling people. Um, they're my harshest critics. Apparently, I make disgusting food. <laughs> um, and, but um, working really hard, yeah, to um, support my two uh, my two girls. <laughs> Um, to grow up loving food um, and um, yeah and hopefully when my youngest goes off to school I'll be able to bring back in a little bit of private practice and go back to um, to doing a little bit of um, pediatric dietetics um, which in my soul I think I'll always be a pediatric dietitian though not actually <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> Oh, that's so fascinating hearing that even just about your your children, just as far as uh, you see so many people in this industry that um, a challenge, let's say, once <laughs> kids come along with their ideal of how they envisage their kids eating and enjoying food and then the challenges that they bring. But I can't even imagine how much of that you'll be able to take practically into a clinic environment one day again yes. like just like what a way to learn <laughs> I know well I mean we're getting very much into me but yeah my, my girls aren't too bad but my eldest has ADHD and um, she takes medication for that so that's really a biggest challenge I've had is to try and get mm. her eating a wide variety of foods and getting plenty of fiber in and I feel like yeah she has tested every strategy that I have <laughs> and I spent far too much time thinking of innovative ways Ways to try and uh, to get food into <laughs> absolutely <laughs> wow no that's that's really interesting um mm. just to know that background um and uh, yeah it sounds like it's still a burning a burning passion in the background like that is um part of your future yeah it's still the thing that I I still um I'll still do for free all the time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I get lots of, uh, I get, um, Microbes are a very gr- large growing company, lots of uh, young people, lots of people are having babies at Microba, so I still do um, consultations <laughs> for all the staff <laughs> um, on, um, on on helping support. I do lots of pre- playground dietetics, I'd call it. Um, <laughs> Standing in, <laughs> um, standing in the playground, helping advise people what they should be um, doing about their children's allergies or their other issues. So, yeah. oh, fantastic. So let's dive in um, with your really um, amazing experience and qualifications, and obviously what you do at Microba. I'd love to talk about what you consider the best way that we can test our microbiome. There's, there are quite a few different ways this can be done and a lot of our listeners have heard us talk about testing before as far as functional testing for the gut. Uh, a lot of our listeners are very interested in this space. Um, as I was saying even before we started, it can range from people who are just looking to learn more about their health and self-educating right through to some practitioners that listen too. So, I'd love you to talk to, um, yeah, what's the best way that we can look at testing our microbiome? Yeah, so I think anybody, whatever their background now, would have heard of the microbiome. Um, And and 10 years ago, it would have been a really novel 
concept to even think about the microbiome mm. and that, how much it's influencing your health. And if we understand why that is, it really comes down to technology. Um, so um, they spent an awful lot of time learning how to sequence DNA so they could sequence the human DNA. That was a massive project. Um, which And through the development of that technology um, to sequence DNA um, and sequencing the human genome, they were then able to apply this to stool samples and to the gut. And for the first time, we really had the technology to look at all the microbes that were in the gut. Prior to that, it was very much the only, the only strategies available were really to try and grow microbes in culture. And the challenge is, is the microbes that like to live in our guts hate oxygen. So they're really hard to grow in a lab. <laughs> so the fact was, we knew very little about this diverse community of microbes that lived in our gut. But the um, invention of this DNA sequencing gave us a new way to capture all those different species. And we're still very much in an expansion and learning phase. Um, and the um, progress we're making is astronomical. Um, but there are now many techniques available for looking at this. So the really the older style techniques, the techniques that I used in my PhD when I started in 2011, is called 16S. And what this is doing is just looking at one small section of the DNA and then trying to match that to databases to try and see who it is. So that small section can give you a clue about the species, but it's not um, as accurate. And as the DNA sequencing technology has advanced, it's become quicker, easier, cheaper, we've been able to expand what we do. And so now um, there are techniques called shotgun metagenomics or whole genome um, sequencing. And what that does, rather than just looking for one little snapshot of one gene, it actually sequences all the DNA. And what we can do there, that allows us to much more accurately um, identify which species are in the gut, but also gives us the capacity to do other things like look at um, how much does the overall microbiome have the capacity to produce certain compounds? So we're very interested in the short chain fatty acids. These are um, beneficial compounds um, that our microbiome creates, um, and these have numerous health benefits throughout the body. Um, prior to our great understanding of the microbiome, we often thought of fiber as really its main role being roughage or um, mm -hmm. sort of bulking or its main role was really just to make you poo and if you even now if you look at the dietary reference values for fiber they are very much based on how much fiber do you need to just poo regularly that's it that's mm -hmm. as all that's as mm -hmm. far as we've kind of got uh, but now we're starting to really understand that actually um, the reason diets that are rich in fiber are so good for us is that actually this fiber gets converted by a microbiome into these compounds called short chain fatty acids that have benefits throughout our body. We also um, can have microbes that are creating compounds that in excess can have detrimental impacts on a microbiome. So we can look at genes that can, you know, can produce those. Um, and we can also look at the capacity of the microbiome to degrade things. So although the microbiome mostly likes to eat fiber, it can also eat other things like excess protein in our diet or the mucus molecules that create the lovely mucus lining that lines and protects our gut. 
Um, something that I've been working on, which is a, a sort of the next challenge, is scientists have been doing a really good job of sort of developing the techniques for measuring who's there. But what we, you know, to be able to bring that into practice, we need to be able to put that into context and say, well, is that a lot? Is that usual? Is that expected? Is that good? Is that bad? Um, so what we've been doing at Microba is we've been working very hard to put together uh, a healthy cohort so that we can put these results in context. So when people um, take their tests, they can consent to share their data for research purposes, and many people very generously do that. And so we've got to the point where we've now screened over 12,000 research samples, and we've been able to find um, 484 people that we call exceptionally healthy Australians. So we've become very much more rigorous than normal people would do. Um, sorry, normal people. Well, most research studies would um, would limit themselves. So rather mm. than just saying a healthy person is someone who doesn't have disease and isn't taking medications, mm -hmm. we've also said, um, are they smoking? Are they are they following a, a relatively healthy diet? Are they if they're consuming excessive alcohol we exclude them we they have to be having a minimum of two serves of fruits and vegetables per day but on average our healthy cohort has at least four serves of fruits and vegetables per day so we're looking for people who are healthy but also doing the right things um, and then we use that to let us know how a, per, a person's results compare to that group to say is this where we'd like it or is there some drift away from what we would see in a healthy population yeah that's so interesting so interesting and I take it as you've had these um like tw you know 12,000 research samples and then getting this um 480 healthy cohort number you've seen patterns develop as far as what uh, the microbiome looks like. Um, I imagine there would be, as always, variations from person to person, but has that been, I, I just can't even imagine how exciting that would be seeing that data come through with that idea of like inverted commas, like a, a healthy person, their diet, their lifestyle, et cetera, and then seeing how that translates across to their microbiome and mm -hmm. yeah, seeing patterns there. So is that, has that been really um I guess one really obviously fascinating to see, but were there has there also been some surprises of like, oh, I didn't expect this, or yeah, I'm just curious. Um, so I think what's um, what's clear is that there is no one perfect in terms mm -hmm. of a microbiome. There's lots of ways mm -hmm. that a microbiome can be healthy, um, and um, and what's interesting I think um, to note is that in all of our samples, there is not one species that we have found that is in everyone. So there is no species that a healthy microbiome must contain to be healthy. Mm -hmm. um, every mm -hmm. single person is um, born with a relatively sterile gut. And then in our early life, we go collecting collections of microbes. Um, and then there's many factors that influence which microbes end up forming the community that becomes our microbiome throughout life. And then throughout our life, many factors can then influence how that evolves. Um, but what we know is that the combinations of species um, that create your microbiome can be very unique from person to person. 
but what you need is a certain collections of species that can do certain jobs. So everyone to have a healthy microbiome, it doesn't matter which species are creating the short chain fatty acids, but they must have mm. species that are creating short chain mm -hmm. fatty acids to be healthy. Um, mm -hmm. And what we'd like to see is a microbiome that's quite diverse. So it doesn't have just one or two species doing this imp these important jobs, but has numerous species doing these important jobs. So if there is a slight change in environment, perhaps you become sick, you have to take a medication or you go traveling, um, some of those species might not do so well with those new changes environments, but hopefully others will um, survive or do well in that environment and will be able to continue that important function. And that's why we look for um, diversity as a sort of very rough and ready overall marker of the microbiome. So that is the number of species in the microbiome, but also how evenly they're spread. So no one particular species is taking over the microbiome. Mm -hmm. And that really gives us a sense of how resilient the microbiome is, um, because we're all going to um, encounter um, challenges in our life. The microbiome's no different, um, and um, <laughs> and um, you know a, a more diverse microbiome will be able to um, to get through those challenges more than more so than a less diverse microbiome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I I take it again, like not putting I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like as far as what you have seen with the studies and the information that one of the key factors with the healthier um, cohort has been that diversity and that richness to the microbiome. Uh, we, and definitely that's something that we talk to our clients about extensively at JCN is this concept of creating diversity and richness in their diet and that which we'll get into and how that correlates to the microbiome. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, I take it that has been and a very common outcome of someone that is more healthy again in that um, inverted commas. <laughs> yeah. So Microba has a whole arm to the business called the Ventures Business who are busy looking for signals in the microbiome that compare um, healthy people to certain diseases and looking for ways that we can um, provide novel ways to intervene. Um, and so that's very much an ongoing piece of work. Um, as to, um, you know, where where certain changes in the microbiome might be leading to certain diseases and what we can do. But this is very much a long journey for us to work mm -hmm. out. Um, and, um, and there's also obviously the capacity for individuals to measure their microbiome, um, compare that to the healthy cohort, and then work with the practitioner to um, optimise their own personal microbiome. Um, mm hmm yeah, for sure. Let's talk about diet, uh, mm -hmm. an amazing, amazing tool that we have and that um, we are dealing with every day at the clinic. And what I love about what I love about food and diet and that I get really passionate about with our clients and even on the podcast is that it's it's something that we do every day mm -hmm. is we consume food um, we need to consume food and how food can be so powerful with the choices that we make day to day, week to week, year to year, and how that can influence our own personal microbiome. Um, and I do love the individualized side of this too, which we might touch on. I love how you were saying before, like that 
concept of, of course, they're individualized microbiome. I will be different to yours and yours will be different to Carissa's. Like we, we all have our own unique species. I think of it like our own fingerprint in some ways. Um, but diet is just such a pivotal part of this. So uh, a big area, but from your perspective, how do you see diet influencing the microbiome, particularly, yeah, so many areas you were talking earlier about short chain fatty acids, but it, it must be such a world of possibilities that you see within microba and what can be done and what can be in some ways manipulated as far as different fibers and so forth. But yeah, tell, tell me all about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh- so um, diet is, an, is um, it's certainly very important with the microbiome and people often will state it's one of the most important factors influencing the microbiome. And, um, mm-hmm. and when we're saying that, we really mean it's one of the most important modifiable factors influencing the adult microbiome. Um, so mm-hmm. in terms of the child microbiome, diet is one of the factors as many others um, that play a role and there are many other factors influencing the microbiome, such as our genetics, which aren't as easy to change. Um, but mm-hmm. diet is certainly one of the most important modifiable factors. Of the, and it's certainly where we'll be looking for most of our interventions in terms of being able to do microbiome-directed care, to try and either alter what the microbiome looks like or alter what the microbiome is producing, or even make sure that the diet is um, aligned with the microbiome. So knowing your microbiome type can help you make the right choices in making sure that you've got the right diet for your microbiome, um, even so that we can talk through examples of that. But it's certainly an area where there's a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. And I talked earlier, like we've always known that diets I mean, we've known for a long time that diets that are rich in plant-based foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, legumes, these are diets that are good for us. They're associated with reduced risk of cancer. They're associated with reduced risk of heart disease, the biggest killers. Um, and um, they are associated with many other health benefits. And, you know, emerging is the research of how important it is for mental health and how these diets can be helped to increase mental wellness and reduce symptoms of anxiety and depression for example so really despite not having the technology to look at the microbiome the microbiome has always been there whether researchers have measured it or not so we've been seeing the benefits um, through the research but now what we're starting to understand is the role the microbiome plays in providing those benefits Um, and this is where we are Um, really at a frontier for understanding this because what we've done previously in terms of science is we've learnt really well. I mean, I went to, I did my undergraduate at King's College London in the UK and I was a while ago now in the 90s. (laughs) But um, at that time, my lecturers were pioneers who had sat in camps in Africa in the 1960s and 70s working out how much vitamin A do you need not to go blind? How much iodine do you need not to get a goiter? Um, And we really have got to a point where we do now understand what are the essential nutrients within food and how much do we need to meet our minimum requirements. We know which are the essential vitamins and minerals. We know the amounts that are required to uh, avoid overt deficiency. 
But now we need to move past that and learn more about the diet. So we, you know, at this stage, we sort of look at maybe 150 compounds within food. These are the macronutrients, the micronutrients, and so forth. But what we're now understanding is actually diets contain thousands of bioactive components. Mm. So not just fiber isn't one thing, it's lots of different products that we've grouped together into this group called roughage. Um, and um, there are other compounds called phytonutrients, which are bound to this fiber. Um, so there's thousands of compounds that are being delivered by diet. Um, and these are being delivered in combinations that might be synergistic, they might be antagonistic, mm. um, and also factors make a difference, such as in what food matrix are they delivered, um, what sort of food processing, what sort of additives. So um, when we talk about diet, I always try to make it clear that diet isn't one thing. And so mm. we can talk about the diet in many different ways. So we can talk about the nutrients we can talk about the foods, we can talk about the patterns in the food, um, we can talk about diet styles, um, we can talk about food processing, we can talk about additives. And so um, there is, you know, this is a massive topic. Um, and it's one huge, that, yeah. yes, and one that I'll never yeah. get, and one that I'll never get <laughs> tired of talking about and thinking about, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, but what we've been looking at recently in Microba is we've started um, doing some analysis just on self-reported diet style. So mm -hmm. we asked people, are you following a special diet? And if they said yes, we gave them about a list of about 30 special diets where they could just say, yes, I am vegan, or yes, I'm following a Mediterranean diet, or yes, I'm ketogenic, yes, I'm paleo. And we really just limited it at this early stage to that. We didn't go and look look at their food frequencies to check that what they said was a keto diet was what we agree mm. is a keto diet, just that they say I'm following this diet, self-reported. Um, and then we compared those people to people said, no, I'm not on a special diet and looked for patterns in their microbiome. So on a very um, high level um, analysis, we started looking at the number of species that were significantly changed in their abundance. So this was like a significant increase in the amount of this species mm. or a significant decrease. So not small changes, but quite big changes mm -hmm. um, that um, were statistically significant because we have such a large research sample, we can really start interrogating this. And what was interesting for me was that when we plotted just the number of species that were changed, the diets um, out of these 30 or so that had the biggest impact were actually, first of all, the vegan diet, and secondly, the ketogenic diet, closely followed by the paleo diet. And I just thought this was really interesting because when you look at the studies, um, a lot of them still do nutrient-based analysis, and generally their conclusions are nutrients that come from animal-based foods have this influence, and nutrients that come from plant-based foods have the opposite. So one thing, you know, emerging very sort of rough signal is that animal and plant foods have opposite influences on the microbiome. But what we saw in our analysis is that when we kind of take the two extremes of that animal to plant ratio in the diet, we actually see that these two diets are vegan on one side, which is sort of the extreme of plant-based mm -hmm. and um, ketogenic on the other, which is kind of down to the extreme of the animal-based diet. Um, we don't at this point ask about the carnivore diet, which would be even more extreme to that mm -hmm. um, to that level. So that one wasn't included in this analysis. But um, 
we we find that those are having the biggest influence on the species. So I thought that was interesting. It's almost like the more extreme the diet, the bigger the change you will see on the microbiome. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Which, yeah, it, it makes sense as far as such a, yeah, chalk and cheese intake from a dietary perspective. And what were some of the... Um, sort of speak was it off the top of your head like as far as some of those species differences mm -hmm. I know some of our listeners that might go a little bit over their head but I'm <laughs> going to ask selfishly because yeah, I know sure. some people that want to know um, yeah so um so interestingly I mean something that I found interesting by the literature is because some research papers you read they really kind of group vegetarian and vegans as one group and then omnivores mm -hmm. so for those who mm -hmm. don't know omnivores that's people who eat meat and plants um so what you know a lot of humans consume are omnivores. So people, um, and so often they'll be comparing omnivores to vegetarians and vegans and kind of group them together. But when you start looking at the studies that really pull apart vegetarians and vegans, you, although you do see certain patterns, such as the omnivores have increased levels of certain bacteria, such as Bilophilia wadsworthia, and this is a bacteria that's been linked to the consumption of saturated fats and can be linked to... Um, some gut inflammation causes, so it's sort of not a goodie, um, if you like. Um, we do start seeing differences in the vegans and the vegetarians. So a really clear one is uh, Streptococcus thermophilus is a um, starter common starter culture that's made to use yogurt. And so when we look at uh, vegetarians, they actually have more of this species compared to omnivores, whereas vegans have less. And that's really easy to explain because obviously mm -hmm. vegetarians are probably mm -hmm. eating more yogurt and um, vegans are obviously not having dairy products. Um, so I think it's important to realize that, yeah, vegans and vegetarians in terms of the microbiome, it's not the same. They are different diets. So one's obviously mm -hmm. contains dairy and the other doesn't. Um, but when thinking about the vegan microbiome, the really sort of clear pattern is that your more the sort of very stereotypical microbiome that we'd see in a vegan is one that is dominated by Prevotella copri. Mm -hmm. So Prevotella copri is a really interesting species. It's um, one of these ones that's really hard to pin down. And like, although we like to sort of divide the world in black and white and say this is good <laughs> and that's bad. Um, <laughs> Prevotella resists all attempts to be categorized. So when we, <laughs> when we look at the research, we see that people who have diabetes and arthritis are more likely to have more Prevotella copper in their gut. But then we see other research where it can be protective from irritable bowel syndrome and actually can be associated with less abdominal fat um, and can actually even protect the gut from disruptions caused by antibiotics. So it's not easy to categorize it from the literature. Um, and we need to dig in to understand a bit more about this species to understand why that is. So mm -hmm. Prevotella, although it's quite stereotypically the vegan microbiome, it's even more so the non-Western um, microbiome species. So when we look at populations from non-Western countries, we find Prevotella copri in about 95% of the population. Whereas in Western countries, we find it in about a third of people. When it is present, it's often present in quite high amounts. It often dominates the microbiome. It's a very adaptable species. So it's a species that can use fiber, it can use protein, and it can use leucine. So no matter what you're eating, it's going to be happy. Mm. So it really mm -hmm. gets to, to take over. Um, but depending on what you're eating really makes a difference about what it's 
doing. So if you are eating not much fiber and lots of protein, then it's going to be producing these compounds called branch chain amino acids. Branch chain amino acids are the building blocks of our muscle. They also have lots of other um, important functions in the um, important functions in the body. Um, and then we burn them up in our muscles and by doing exercise. So if you're eating lots of protein, not doing much exercise, you're going to get an accumulation of this, which is not good news. And this is the theory as to why this can end up causing insulin resistance and be associated with obesity. Um, whereas if you're eating um, lots of fiber, these, this prevotella will actually produce beneficial compounds, short chain fatty acids. And if you're doing lots of exercise, it will any branch amino acids that are being produced will be burnt up. So we start piecing the puzzle together. Mm -hmm. So we have a microbiome that's dominated by prevotelicopri. We know that that's a very common microbiome that we'd see in non-Western populations. So it's evolved um, within a non-Western environment. If we then combine that microbiome with a Western-style diet, very protein-rich, low in fiber, and a Western-style lifestyle, like what I like to call the couch potato lifestyle, <laughs> um, there's a mishmash here. We have a non-Western microbiome and a Western lifestyle. And, and it seems that the Prevotella-Copri-dominant microbiome um, will actually make you more predisposed to the negative influences of a non-Western microbiome. But if you have this non-Western or vegan style microbiome and you're combining this with a more plant-based diet, with more activity, this is actually going to maximize the benefits of this. So this is a really mm -hmm. interesting example where mm -hmm. when we measure someone's microbiome and we say, okay, you have a prevotelicot predominant microbiome, we're not saying there's anything wrong with your microbiome or your microbiome has to change. We're saying we now understand your microbiome, so it's extra important for you to watch your diet and lifestyle because if you um, have a, not, uh, sort of a, a more couch potato lifestyle, more protein-rich Western-style diet, it's going to um, not work in your favor. Whereas if you go for more of a plant-based diet and keep active, it's actually going to be um, a really healthy microbiome for you. Hi, guys. Just a quick note to let you know, we are now offering $10 off my cookbook Eat for JCN podcast listeners only. So there is a new discount code you can use, JCN podcast, all one word in capital letters. Head to the website, the link is in the show notes, and you just use that coupon code at checkout and that will give you $10 off. Really excited to bring you this. It's a way for us to say thank you for listening to the podcast. And again, that is JCN podcast, all one word. Head to the website, link in the show notes. Wow. Yeah, that's thank you for explaining that. I just think it really highlights, again, the individualized nature of this. I know when looking at test results and, and presenting them to clients, and as you said before, often we like things to be black and white and we're looking for like, is this good or is this bad? And this mm. is such a good example of, of like there isn't a good or bad, like, you know, there there is a reason for these species um, with what they do in Mm -hmm. many different ways and it's how that environment is then influenced and as you said too one of the biggest ways we influence our microbiome is what we eat and what we choose to eat mm. alongside other outside factors but diet diet is huge um 
And this is something we see at the clinic too with clients um, where we get uh, them coming in and having a certain style of eating and we are testing and we're seeing their microbiome in comparison to their lifestyle and we, we have that beauty of being able to do that that case taking and and putting the symptom picture and the lifestyle with what we're seeing, but then changing their diet and working with their diet and working with certain compounds and then retesting, um, which is really exciting to see like what you're talking about here and how we could take, say, someone who was a classic maybe couch potato um, eating in a certain sort of westernized style way and then we're looking at increasing movement and working with a more, maybe it's more just even a whole food diet for them, uh, or it might be including a few vegetarian meals a week. Like it, it again, very individualized to them, but physically not only seeing um, the changes within them, which is what we all want, like those positive shifts in how we feel, because that of course is why often people come along mm-hmm. because they're not feeling well, but then to actually see the changes in the data um, is pretty magical as well. But I just, yeah, again, I really love that example as far as how we need to look at the nuances and even for practitioners listening, because I know um, practitioners, particularly when they first start, will look at testing like this and and want to categorize. They want to be like, is this good or is this bad? It's like, oh, it's not that simple. I think Mm -hmm. um, you learn to be very commonly answering these things with, well, it depends. Yes. <laughs> Let's yeah. talk about all the other variables first. <laughs> yeah. I often get accused of never being able to answer a question straight. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> um, everything is always a very, well, in this circumstance and that circumstance. But I think this is really the, the value of actually testing because there's mm. no way that you can tell what your microbiome is like without testing. Mm -hmm. So you might look at someone who has gut symptoms and assume that their microbiome is awful, but that's Mm -hmm. not always the case. Um, Sometimes what we will do is someone will have awful, what we'd say gut health or gut symptoms or really be struggling. But actually when we measure their microbiome, actually find that their microbiome is doing really well. And that shows you Mm -hmm. that these gut symptoms are less likely to be an expression of what we might call unbalance or dysbiosis in the microbiome. And there may be other factors that are more important to focus on in terms of doing that. So we may go for... um, you know, approaching stress relief or gut-directed hypnotherapy or another method for trying to minimize or looking for reasons um, for why their microbiome is is like this. We may have other people who say, well, everyone needs to eat more plants and exercise more. Mm. Um, but really, it's a, so, you know, everyone should do that. And that's right. You know, everyone should <laughs> eat more plants and exercise more. <laughs> but the fact is, we can't do everything. So we need to prioritize what we are going to do. Um, and, and microbiome testing can really help clarify where you're going to get your most bang for buck or what suits you the best, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. So out of all the different dietary patterns, that are available or different choices that you can make. And we do have to eat every day and make decisions about what we eat Um, numerous times every day. This is just an extra piece of information that can help you make the right choice for you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And can also, I think a really important thing is it can help motivate you. So um, you might, you might think, well, everyone knows they shouldn't be doing this, but if you now have that piece of information, well, I 
am a person who has a prevotella dominant microbiome and if I eat this, it's going to have a lot more influence potentially on my risk of developing diabetes than my friend because they don't, they have more mm-hmm. Western style microbiome, which is more adapted, um, has had more time to evolve to um, the, um, the sort of a heavily processed Western style diet. Um, and mm-hmm. so they will actually have a bit more tolerance, not that it's good for them, but they have a bit more leeway, whereas I don't. So that gives me more motivation to, to make the better choice. Uh, that's so true. And what about the ketogenic diet? You mentioned yeah. that earlier. I feel I feel like it's it's probably not as popular as it used to be. Like when you just look at what's mm-hmm. trending as such. But what I why I wanted to bring this up, and you mentioned it earlier, um, is the more sort of higher protein or even carnivore. Like carnivore is really trending. Like we have clients mm-hmm. that will come to us that are either on carnivore or asking about carnivore. Um, So, yeah, I'd love to just hear what some of the studies are showing with respect to the microbiome and some of the behaviours that are being seen. Yeah, and this is really the lag that we see in the research. So about five years ago, Mm. everyone was interested in the ketogenic diet. Mm. Mm. Um, And we're now just getting to the point where we're starting to see some small studies being published that are exploring how the ketogenic diet impacts the microbiome um, using the metagenomics technology that really helps us identify which species are there, but also the functions of the Mm. microbiome. Um, And while the carnivore diet is really um, trending at the moment, there are no studies out there, mm-hmm. but we can sensibly make some conclusions based on what we know about the ketogenic diet of what the impact of the carnivore diet will have. So in um, my recent review of the literature, I was able to find only three small studies that looked at how the ketogenic diet impacted the microbiome. And um, each one of them took a slightly different approach to putting their participants on a ketogenic diet, but they all had the mm-hmm. same Um, core principle that they were limiting carbohydrate intake almost entirely you know very small amounts of carbohydrate Mm, left mm -hmm. with the aim of inducing ketogenesis which is what would happen as well if you were on a carnivore diet so we know um, that those sort of underlying principles of taking all the carbs out basically um, and mostly focusing on protein intake um, is what these diets are doing now interestingly um often what would be said um on sort of first um is that the ketogenic diet would increase the levels of a particular group of bacteria called acomancia these are microbes that live in that lovely mucus lining of the gut um, and um, consume it but also help regenerate it and are meant to be associated with metabolic health benefits mm-hmm. um, And interestingly, only one of those studies showed that there was an increase in the acomancia. So although everyone says that's what a ketogenic diet will do, the research isn't consistent. Mm -hmm. And that was actually a study that was comparing um, what they called a Mediterranean ketogenic diet to um, a low-fat diet. Um, And so by Mediterranean, they meant that they were the oils that were coming in were focused more from the olive oil and fish and lean meats rather than the fatty, very high saturated fat meats that you might see in other diets. Um, and but then they compared that to a very low fat diet, like almost no fat in the diet. Um, but what we did see in all three studies and also in microbiome data is a very consistent signal that the ketogenic diet was reducing 
um, beneficial species. So three species that came out across all the studies consistently was um, bifidobacterium species, so many different bifidobacterium species, um, Agathobacter rectali, which is a species that's very commonly in research reported to be associated with healthy controls when comparing disease. So it's a real marker of a, a healthy microbiome. Um, and a species called Ruminococcus ebromi. So Ruminococcus ebromi is a, a pretty special species. It's what we call a keystone species. It has a unique capacity to be able to access resistant starch. So whereas resistant starch, it sort of gets grouped together like fiber, even though it's not quite fiber. Um, it's not what we call a non-starch polysaccharide, which the geeks among us is what we, you know, generally <laughs> is what people are talking about when we talk about fiber in sort of in layman's terms. But what it is, is it's the starches in our food that's so complex, our human gut can't um, digest them by the time it goes through the small intestine. So that takes about two hours. And in that time, the human enzymes haven't been able to access and digest that starch. So that then complicated structured starch gets delivered to the large bowel. Um, and very few species can actually access that. But ruminococcus and some bifidobacterium are the few species that can start pulling that apart. And once they start pulling that apart, that then allows all the other species to use that wonderful um, resistant starch as a fibre to create um, short-chain fatty acids such as butyrate, which helps feed to the gut walls. So it's a really important species and the ketogenic diet is reducing it. Um, and so what we see is that although many people will anecdotally say, look, I took, I went on a ketogenic diet and I lost weight, which is great. You know, mm. if you overweight and you're going to lose five, 10% of your body weight, we know that has metabolic benefits. Um, or oh, it helped with my gut symptoms. And of course it did, because you took out any sort of fermentation <laughs> in the gut. Nothing's happening. <laughs> um, you've, nothing's <laughs> happening down there. So of course you're not having any sensations. Um, but what's the long-term impact? Are you sowing seeds? Are you doing this in a sustainable way mm. um, to build health? Or are you compromising your long-term health for short-term benefit? Um, and that, mm -hmm. you know, what worries me is that if these diets go on for too long, you might get to the point where these species now are no, not just low, but they've disappeared. And once they're gone, exactly. they're going to be really hard to get back. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, I mean, we often see this at um, Microba. We often hear stories of people who are on long journeys of trying to improve their gut health. And when you ask them when it started, it will be when they went on an extreme diet mm. Mm. a few years ago to lose weight or to do this or to do that. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, And then we see the aftermath of that. Mm. Um, and we have an interesting case study of um, a healthy young lady who had done her test with us. Um, she was following a gluten-free Mediterranean-style diet. She did her microbiome test, and it was looking wonderful, nice and healthy, thriving. Everything was good. But she she wasn't overweight, but she had a wedding coming up, and she wanted to look good. I mean, we all know the story. <laughs> um, and so she, um, she felt that the best way to do this was to go – on a Mediterranean-style ketogenic diet, focusing on good fats, so focusing on plants, you know, doing it in a very informed way. And after six months of this, she did retest her microbiome, and unfortunately, um, we, you know, we it wasn't a pretty picture. <laughs> we found that the level of butyrate species had completely plummeted. They were still there after six months, but they were really reduced. And the level of species that were starting to consume the mucus layer that protects the gut had really risen. 
So this was enough for her to say, look, actually, this is not, this is, I'm on a, on a bad path here. I need to reverse this before I do irreparable damage to my microbiome. So she did go back to her previous eating pattern. But unfortunately, at that point, she then had to endure um, gut symptoms to get back to bringing in all of those carbohydrates and grains into mm-hmm. her diet because her microbiome had lost, had become unadapted to that diet. So as her gut adjusted, she got symptoms like bloating um, and a bit of abdominal pain, but she persevered through that discomfort to come out to the other side for her microbiome sake. That is such a good example, a real life example. And honestly, that is a huge aspect of what we see with clients um, who come to the clinic often where they have depleted their diet. And mm-hmm. as you, you explained that so well, it comes from often a place, well, the, the wedding scenario is definitely one, <laughs> but more often than not, what we see is people who are having digestive distress and they start self-eliminating mm-hmm. and reducing and reducing and reducing what they're consuming and most of that does fall into the carbohydrate category and that's why I ask I know the ketogenic studies are a more extreme version but they are really good um, idea of how the microbiome can shift in less favorable patterns with the reduction of the carbohydrates and yeah we, we see people and we talk about this a lot who have for years and years been following a very restrictive carbohydrate diet and they're so backed into a corner because if they try to eat those foods as you just explained with this this lady they experience symptoms so they associate them with being bad and inflammatory um you know which is it's just unfortunately what the state that their microbiome is in but people can get um understandably very stuck in that Mm. space and I love how you talked about yeah, how people can be attracted to these types of diets for short-term gains but not thinking about the long-term outcomes um, of, yeah. of what this can and, look and like. I can, and that's, yeah. I can understand it because if you listen mm. to the press or the influencers, yes. you know, the message is out there, bread is fattening, <laughs> carbs are fattening, yes. carbs are yeah, bad yeah. for you, gluten's bad. Um, and, you know, and I come from a background of having a speciality in food allergy and intolerance. I've worked in um, immunology clinics in the past. Um, so I've really you know, I've seen people who are down to five foods because they've eliminated, 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 eliminated with this sort of searching for the the culprit. Um, And, you Mm. know, really, um, really, you know, this is where the importance is of working with a professional because they will help you identify what the most likely culprit is. And it quite often isn't what you think it is. Um, Mm -hmm. And then actually design a proper elimination diet, which really shouldn't last for any longer than six weeks and then if you feel better you then need to re-challenge bring it mm-hmm. back in it's not mm-hmm. okay and now stay on that diet that elimination diet is a, <laughs> exactly let's take out everything we suspect and see if you get better and I'll tell you what there are people who take out everything they suspect and it isn't that because that's not what's mm-hmm. causing their symptoms it's something else um yeah. And then we just put everything back in. But otherwise we go, okay, well, maybe one of these things is causing your symptoms, not all of them. And then you put Mm -hmm. each one back in. Um, And Mm -hmm. even once you get to a point where you've got them, you know, you might find you put something back in and it does cause symptoms. If you have 
a true IgE mediated allergy, you know, you may have to be entirely completely free some people but even then sometimes what we bring back is what you can tolerate so we'll even work out then you know how much can you have let's and we know that continuing to have small amounts of that food will help you um, become more tolerant to it so really this is where the importance is of working with a healthcare practitioner to ensure that you are avoiding the right thing to the right amount mm-hmm. and not avoiding things you don't need to be avoiding and you're not causing um, long-term damage, which might be to your microbiome, but it might be to um, to other things such as your bones. So, I mean, something I, I encounter a lot in clinical practice is this concept that people sort of don't think any people need milk after their two. Um, and um, and I, you know, try to make the point that actually we're building our muscle mass till we're 30. Um, mm-hmm. And then once we get to 30, we're at our peak. Um, and then, so any deficiency in calcium throughout life is really just setting up problems for later in life so you don't have to get your calcium from dairy but if you're not having dairy you need to get it from somewhere and that's Mm. where you need to to work with with um, a healthcare professional to make sure you're not leaving yourself um, with nutritional deficiencies by taking out um, important foods from your diet for sure for sure and I yeah I like what you said there too about um, that re-challenging if we're doing some form of elimination, the importance of rechallenging and bringing things back in. Again, we see clinically um, where people will remove food. There can be a lot of um, mental challenges and emotional challenges around this concept of reintroduction. Um, mm-hmm. Even when you've been, it, it's quite ironic. Like you, you can work quite hard to get a client on board to go on an elimination diet or to remove certain types of foods for a short amount of time. But when they feel so good and so much better, then you're in four to six weeks like, okay, now we're going to start doing a very systemized reintroduction. And you can just see their face. They're just like, no, 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 no. So again, that importance of doing it properly and working with someone that can do it in a very controlled and systemized way is vital. Yeah, and I think um, that's a real challenge because I get it. I get it. Like, I feel great. I don't want to risk feeling bad. Yeah. yeah it's it's like, why? Why do I'm, I do that? I'm scared <laughs> to try that because, you know, it really hurts when I have these symptoms or it really disrupts my life and I get it. Um, mm. You know, my experience was working mainly with children, so parents were normally quite happy to bring diversity as we've talked about my challenges we want our kids to eat um, it's a very a very um a very innate need in us but um but yeah but certainly when I was working in the immunology clinic and I was working with adults for certain adults when I felt that they may benefit from quite a strict elimination diet I got to the point where I would not um, even start the diet unless they made a commitment to a certain number of sessions and introducing so mm. I wouldn't even put them on the diet without getting their commitment to reintroduce um, because I saw too many people um, who'd been put on these elimination diets elsewhere and by the time they'd come to me maybe years later they were I would say many had developed almost overt eating disorders their their diet was so restricted and it was really hard to get them back to eating Um, and we even had a case study in, in one of the clinics where someone ended up being admitted to hospital with scurvy because they were, wow. which is, yeah, you know, vitamin wow. C deficiency that, you know, you'd think was eliminated um, a long time ago. Um, but these, you know, people really are get on some, some people are on some very, very restricted diets. So we do need to be very mm-hmm. conscious um, about um, the risks associated 
with certain mm-hmm. diet, very extreme diets. Um, but I think I want to make the point that we've spoken about sort of the two extremes, you know, the vegan, mm. the ketogenic diet. Uh, and I think um, what's important to remember is you don't have to go to the extremes. Um, and in fact, the sort of most evidence-based diet in terms of health benefits and the microbiome is um, the Mediterranean diet, which is an omnivore diet. So it's what we'd call maybe more a plant-based omnivore diet. It does include fish, it does include eggs, it does include meat, but in moderate amounts. So um, I don't think the Mediterranean diet is the only healthy way to eat. I think there's lots of different healthy ways, but it is one of the most researched Mm based dietary pattern uh, dietary patterns it's to the stage now where there's so many studies that they're doing systematic reviews of the systematic reviews Mm. um (laughs) so i read a study that was published last year where they'd actually looked at 84 different systematic reviews and they were able to pull out evidence for the benefit of the uh, mediterranean diet on 79 different health outcomes so um and among that very large body of evidence we are also now starting to see um evidence for impacts on the microbiome Mm. um and in particular, we've got evidence that going on a Mediterranean diet can reduce the amount of inflammation in your gut. Um, it can reduce the amount of calprotectin in your poo, which is a marker of the amount of inflammation in your gut. Um, and it can also mm-hmm. increase the amount of butyrate that your microbiome is producing. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, out of those 79 health outcomes, at least some of those are going to be driven by the impacts of the Mediterranean diet on the gut. And there's mm-hmm. lots of factors in the Mediterranean diet which make it really good for the microbiome. So it's very rich in plant foods. Um, so that's fruits, vegetables, nuts and seeds and legumes. So often the legumes get forgotten about um, when we're talking mm, about the Mediterranean diet. They're a really important part of the microbiome, um, I'm sorry, of, of the Mediterranean diet. And, you know, we're aiming to have legumes um, at least three times a week when we're on the Mediterranean diet. It's limiting the amount of red meat and instead having legumes, um, lean white meats or fish so fish is an important mm-hmm. compound and we know that omega-3 fatty acids which are found in fish are ben- very beneficial for the microbiome as well and then another kind of key um, aspect of the micro- of the Mediterranean diet is the inclusion of olive oil and olive oil is um, a monounsaturated fat so it's not pro-inflammatory but also more importantly is the extra virgin olive oil contains lots of polyphenols so these are these chemical compounds that can um, help improve our gut health and those compounds that are starting to be more researched outside of your 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 essential vitamins which is where we've normally focused on so it makes sense that the mediterranean diet is good for the microbiome, but there are many others. For example, um, research studies will look at the Nordic dietary pattern, um, Mm -hmm. which is one that's very rich in rye-based foods, but also oily fishes and lots of plants and so forth. So there's many different patterns of how you can achieve health, um, Mm -hmm. not just one, and it doesn't need to be an extreme, but we know that there are certain um, characteristics of diets that are healthy. And those are more plants... (laughs) Um, I, I'm everyone knows fruits and vegetables are good for you nuts are great um, but we often forget about the legumes and they really are mm-hmm. superstars they are just jam-packed with prebiotic fibers all different types of prebiotic fibers um, so um, yeah so I really think legumes are sort of the unsung heroes um, mm-hmm. that can be um, can be brought into diets um, and um, 
and um, yeah, I mean, coming uh, coming from the UK to Australia, I have to say that uh, just even finding the legumes in the supermarket, there's such a small little section. <laughs> so, <true. laughs> um, so I really recommend the um, the Indian grocers are great to go and get big packs of legumes, and yes. I and I love my pressure cooker. I love my pressure cooker for cooking them nice and quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. No, they're they're amazing. Um, and you're right, like a lot of this average Australian does not eat legumes. The closest they'll come is maybe some hummus. But, yeah, it's very rare to talk to a new client at the clinic who does consume legumes unless they are actively a vegetarian or vegan. Um and they're, they're an interesting food. Like a, I think people aren't exposed to them, so they don't know how to cook them. Um, so that that can make them a bit wary. And then if they have gut issues, like they're just like, oh, no, no, they, they make me feel terrible. So, again, like that misunderstanding of what needs to be done to help them consume legumes. Um, yeah, they're, they're really interesting. And I think like legumes, just to quickly go back to that concept of reintroduction, like when you're working with someone and um, you start approaching legumes, like I find and we find that bringing them in in a slow and steady way and working with smaller amounts and slowly coaching your microbiome on this new food and on these new fibres and compounds is the way to go about it. Like you don't go from eating none to sitting down and eating a big bowl of dal <laughs> for most people with gut issues like that can be problematic and then they'll be the people like no 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 there's no way you're getting me to touch lentils so mm-hmm. there's a way to approach it yeah I um, mean the pressure cooker is great too like that I found even a pressure cooker or a slow cooker to really break them down um, mm-hmm. soaking them for 24 even 48 hours with a little bit of bicarb like there's little mm. tricks that you can use too but um, yeah I think, well, yeah, they're amazing. My mother is Spanish, so I was weaned onto ah, lentils. Um, so yes. I've, um, I've consumed them all my life. But even <laughs> myself, if I, I mean, as I was just sharing earlier, I've unfortunately had a terrible chest infection and had to go on two courses of antibiotics yes. last week. So I will be... Um, I will be on a full microbiome restoration journey for the next few weeks. <laughs> and what that means for me is lots of legumes. And I know that there will be a bit of um, gassiness coming. And to me... I actually sort of try and change what that means. I'm like, mm. I'm like, this is good. I'm healing my microbiome. I've devastated it mm-hmm. now and I need to heal it. And this symptom is telling me that I'm doing that. There's things happening in there. Mm. Um, you know, it's getting the fiber. It's doing what it needs to do. It's making the gases it needs to. Um, and I sort of try and um, reimagine in my brain what that means. And obviously some people get to point where it's really uncomfortable we wouldn't want to go through Mm. that but you know a little bit of gas and a little bit of um distension is actually a sign that it's working Mm -hmm. um and and that's something that we should just let people know and as you say go slow they are they are so jam-packed with prebiotic fibers um that uh, a small bit goes a long way and you you build up and it's one of those Mm. things again where you probably don't eat any and then you eat a big bowl so it's like your gut doesn't get any and then lots so bringing them in gradually and then keeping them consistent so you know that three times a week diet can be great and it doesn't have to be a vegetarian meal you can make a chili con carne where you place Mm. some of the meat with red kidney beans for example Mm -hmm. Um, and we know that if you actually combine the the iron that's in meat, which is called heme iron, with the iron that's in legumes, which is non-heme iron, that non-heme iron is actually absorbed better. So even putting mm-hmm. those two things together, so um, in um, 
in Spain, where my mother's from, you know, we'll often do things like cook a bit of chorizo sausage into our lentils and so forth, which adds a lovely flavor, Yum. but also helps absorb um, that. And we'll often cook it in like a tomato sauce. And again, the vitamin C in the tomato sauce, again, helps you absorb that non-heme iron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's making me hungry. <laughs> yeah. And and my and my and my real uh, yeah, and I think it totally gets topped off with some crusty bread and some goat's cheese on top. But now oh we're just my <laughs> God. now 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 that now that's just for taste and not for health. <laughs> uh, now I want to. I'm conscious of your time, so I I want to move on to talking lastly about retesting. Um, mm-hmm. I did just want to say, though, just on the, right on the end of that, when you were talking about the Mediterranean diet um, and obviously the different components that when you speak to that, the, the big thing that jumps out to me with the Mediterranean diets and these other diets, again, is this concept of diversity. Um, mm-hmm. And I just you just I look at the Mediterranean diet and it just ticks so many boxes as far as whole foods go. Um, mm-hmm. And it just it just makes sense as far as like all that plethora of fuel that we have available there, and mm-hmm. also the way it is um, consumed. Just again, as as far as variety, like nothing's excessive; it's all relatively within balance of the seasons mm-hmm. and so forth. So I just I think it's interesting when you compare that to the average Western diet, which can be yeah, like toast for breakfast, sandwich for lunch, and if you're mm-hmm. lucky, meat and three veg for dinner Mm -hmm. like it just it just makes sense so yeah and even within the western diet style you know we've had a massive explosion of very highly processed foods which is really an area where Mm. they're going to research a lot so these are foods which are very heavily processed so they've taken out all of the roughage if you like are really broken down Mm -hmm. um the carbs that are in there to very refined carbohydrates which you know are not the sort of carbs we want to be having. We really want to be having them from whole plants and whole grains and so forth. And um, But also they've added lots of emulsifiers and sweeteners and preservatives and all of this. And really this is in sort of an emerging area of research where we're really starting to understand um, the impact of this. And again, you know, when they um, did the assessments on whether these food additives are safe in the food supply, the microbiome wasn't considered in terms of the impact Mm. on the microbiome. So this is, you know, a new frontier, if you like, of things that we need to fully understand is that, you know, yes, maybe, you know, maybe that sweetener doesn't cause cancer, but, and and so it's, you know, safe, but actually Mm. what impact is it having on the microbiome? That's Mm -hmm. still what we need to, to, to work through. Um, so how can we how can we manage our very active, busy lives that we all have, um, nourish ourselves, um, but try and limit the amount of, um, of 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 very highly processed food? Is I think a challenge that all of us are living every day. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm. So I just wanted to lastly touch on retesting. So mm-hmm. we've talked about testing and the amazing um, sort of out, outcomes we can pull from the testing in unison with having a person in clinic and case taking and putting all of that together. But what do you see as far as the value of retesting the time frame? And I know this can vary as far mm-hmm. as when someone should consider retesting, because there'll be people listening who have potentially tested or considering testing mm-hmm. or retesting 
Um, and I don't think it's talked about as much. And also within that question, is there anything with a retest that we should be potentially looking for to see in an ideal, you know, sort of like this concept of an ideal outcome if we're taking the first test and looking at it as a, at the second test? So I think a retest, if, if you're trying to change things or do microbiome-directed interventions, is essential. Because you can make assumptions, you know, the research shows us that this makes a difference if you put this intervention, but that doesn't mean it will in that person. It doesn't mean it's necessarily having the impact you're expecting it to. So the only way you can actually tell that the interventions or the changes that you make are having the impact that you expected, they're not having any other impacts you didn't expect, or um, is by retesting. Um, the question we often get is, when should I retest? Mm. Now, we'll often say, you know, diet, uh, when you change your diet, the microbiome starts responding immediately. And certainly in the studies, you'll see um, they can put people on extreme diets. And within three days, so the amount of time it takes for food to travel through the gut, basically, you start seeing changes in the microbiome. But really, um, if we think back to that example of it takes time for the microbiome to adjust, um, mm -hmm. what we want is, and, and also it takes time for people to adjust. So it's very hard to go from living your life one way and then from one day to the next switch to a totally different pattern. Generally, Absolutely. it's small, gradual changes is what we want. Um, so it can take a long time to get to a point where you've changed your diet and you're happy with it and you think that you'll be able to maintain that diet. Um, and then it can take quite some months for your microbiome to adapt. So if you have a very diverse microbiome with lots of different species and lots of capacity, you know, it might be able to adapt quicker. But if you have a very depleted microbiome, it might take even longer to rebuild and get, you know, if you've lost key species or you've lost key functions, it can be a real challenge to try and mm -hmm. bring those back in. And that's where working with a practitioner long term would be really, you know, beneficial in helping do that. Um, but um, so, you know, generally... We would say, um, you know, very rarely would people be retesting any more frequently than after three months, more typically six months, and some people maybe once a year. Mm -hmm. but, you know, if you, yeah, but if you haven't changed anything, you know, you haven't changed your diet, yeah, you, haven't had any, yeah. you haven't had many, any, um, you haven't had any kind of major alterations, um, you know, there's no, you would expect your microbiome to be fairly stable and not have changed. Mm. Um, sure. So, yeah. you know, it's only if you're trying to change it or you've had a major upheaval in your microbiome, let's say you've, you know, had to take lots of antibiotics for a reason and, or something, or you've um, had a big, you want to, and you want to see what's happened, that can be another time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We tend to definitely oscillate between that six months to 12 months space, but very much, as you said, based on what are you doing with that individual person like what is their ideal outcome what has been changed mm -hmm. what was the plan to change versus how long it took to make changes because you could go into um, an initial test and look at putting in some interventions and changes and think right we'll retest in six months but as you you alluded to sometimes it can take longer than anticipated to just make those changes it's mm -hmm. it's very much about changing habits and changing lifestyle patterns. Mm -hmm. So sometimes six months comes around, it's just like, oh, we're not ready. But I can definitely speak to like clinically, retesting is such a valuable tool because it gives 
the client something tangible to look at and also to get excited about when they see in, uh, those improvements, but also clinically to look at, all right, well, we're here, but we've still got these areas to work on. So now we need to hone in and work on those as opposed to thinking, well, well, we did have this initially, so I think we might need to still keep doing this. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, if if I had my way, <laughs> yeah. I would love to see at, when you're actively working on your gut. I think you know every six months over that time would be amazing. But it is it is so valuable to retest and have that data to compare. Mm. And we've been seeing this in the more conventional medicine world now, where gastroenterologists. Mm. I went to a education session for gastroenterologists about. A diseases of gut-brain interaction um, and you know the gastroenterologist was standing up and saying you know well, we're used to saying patient comes in no medications take this medication you know <laughs> but really we're starting to understand that diet has such a major influence on what's happening in your gut um, and everyone comes to you already on a diet it's not a blank canvas mm-hmm. um, and you mm-hmm. then have to work you know with them and they're really in that you know talking um, in that about the importance of working with healthcare professionals who are trained to help people change their diet because it's not just simply getting out a prescription pad and saying, go do this. Mm -hmm. It's such Mm -hmm. a complex behavioral change. And we all know that we don't just eat for nutrition and for health. It plays so many Mm -hmm. more roles in our, um, so much more in our society and in our psychology and in our social um, interactions that, you know, it's an important, it's so much to consider. Yeah, so well said. Mm. Oh wow, I could I could keep talking to you forever, <laughs> but um, <laughs> if we were to we'll wrap have it to, up, we'll have to have it... another podcast one day. <laughs> I've already been writing notes here on exactly some <laughs> some of those potentials. That's for sure. Um, is there anything that you wanted to anything we've missed or anything that you wanted to finish up with before we close up? Um, as you say, we could talk all day, but I think, you know, yes. the, t- the take home message is, is everyone could do with eating a few more plants um, and, um, you know, and really um, testing your microbiome will really is the only way to know what's happening um, and to really make sure that what you're eating is suitable for your microbiome. But if you do have gut symptoms, if you do want to undertake major changes, working with a healthcare professional would be recommended. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Paula. This has been amazing. And yeah, seriously, I have a list here of like other sort of like avenues that we've touched on. And I'm like, let's go down that road. Let's go down that road. So yeah, I would love to have you back sometime. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us. I know our listeners will love this conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time.